0: hi everyone first thank you for tuning in again we've got a small but rapidly growing audience for for the podcast we're making things much more regular now and we've got some great guests coming up both on the founder and on the investor side today's conversation is with mike kelly general partner at new finance vc a new uk-based fund backing startups restructuring the financial system at the interface of traditional finance and defying and crypto they focus on five key thesis areas applied cryptography CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currencies, open finance, computable contracts, and market networks. Um, Mike has a a background as a computer scientist and fintech founder and operator, having previously worked on Starling Bank, Funding Circle, and his own company, Curl. Let's meet Mike Kelly. Mike, good to have you here today. Yeah, Um, no
1: worries. Thanks for having me.
0: um, So yeah, as I said, it'd be useful to have a bit of an intro on you. Uh, your background so you've spent quite a lot of time in financial services sort of fintech startups right
1: mm. yeah my, so by trade I'm a software engineer so mm. um, I've been working with early stage or on on early stage companies building software working on product design um, 18 years um, since I was 18 basically since I came up to school um, and over the last probably like eight years or so, I've I've, I've ended up focusing on uh, on financial technology and financial services. I'm actually not really big fan of the word fintech because I think a lot of what fintechs do is actually product, so it's more about service design and product than it is about like pure technology. But hmm. nonetheless, fintech is the word, so that's what I guess I've been I've been focused on. Um, I was very fortunate. Um, uh, I'm, I'm friends with Tom Blomfield. I'd, I'd worked on a startup with him, a Y Combinator startup called Grouper. Uh, and then when Tom joined a bank that uh, at the time it was called Bank Possible uh, as the CTO, uh, bank, Tom phoned me up and said, do you want to come and build a bank from scratch? And I was like, hell yeah, that sounds awesome. And, I, and I'd never really done, I'd done bits and pieces of kind of fintech related stuff, but nothing that kind of hardcore. Um, so jumped in, built a bank from scratch. And then w- while I was there, um, that that was the bank that incidentally ended up being kind of Starling and Monzo. So they kind of split into two. Right. Uh, but this so was like the very early stages.
0: You were you were sort of involved in that original team the, I, I read about this and then mm. um, and it all sort of ended up breaking up because people fell out between the two companies and stuff, right?
1: I, I think, yeah, I, I think there was some, some sort of like philosophical differences about how to approach the problem space. Mm. And I think you can see that in a way with the, the, the approach that both Starling and Monzo took. They were different, like the brands were different. Uh, they, you know, Monzo went forwards with this kind of prepaid card. Um, Starling kind of held their ground and went straight for the banking license and didn't bother with the intermediary product. Yeah. Um. So, so I think you know, in, in the end, I think actually the departing actually made sense because there was sort of two sides of the team that had different yeah. philosophies about how to approach it, and they both succeeded yeah, exactly. in their own way, right? So, so it's yeah. a happy story for everyone.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, I use I use Monzo for my personal banking, and I use Starling for for business mm-hmm. banking. Um, so, great things about Starling. I mean, so I. So I, so I spent about eight months with
1: um, uh, on that early, it was called Bank Possible at the time. And then I actually went back uh, a few months later uh, to work on the API strategy. And I think one of the things that Starling has done really well that really works for businesses is they've made sure that their API is really solid and they work very early on making sure that a lot of the kind of you know services that businesses depend on and effectively the bank becomes a hub where all these other additional services you know the obvious one being uh, accounting software systems are tightly integrated and work right. very seamlessly so i think starting from that point of view is, is, is a really solid option
0: yeah yeah, yeah. the integrations with so, zero and free yeah. agent and stuff like that are so good aren't they
1: mm. so 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 i was at bank possible i was there for about eight months and, and while i was there i ended up sort of working on the core banking system stuff and then eventually ended up working on the um the bit the core bank that connects to the card system. Um, mm-hmm. So I was working on that, I guess, from a kind of software engineering point of view, but also from a product point of view, because we were trying to figure out what what are the, what's the art of the possible with what we could do mm-hmm. with the card network. So I, that was the first time I'd had a kind of nuts and bolts exposure to how the card scheme works. And um, I became convinced of the company at the time and how the bank's gonna have an API. And we knew that we had this like direct faster payment scheme in the UK where funds are settled instantly and for free for consumers. I became convinced that this sort of archaic system that I was learning about, which is the card scheme, which is really expensive for merchants, it's not very good at controlling risk, which is really the marginal cost in, uh, you know, consumer
0: payments is, is controlling that risk. Right. Um, what does that mean? And in and the user... What do you mean by controlling risk in, in sort of layman's well, terms?
1: So, the, so there's, there's lots of kind of almost like fixed costs of operating a consumer payment scheme, which is like, you know, like all the infrastructure and all the kinds of things that you think like a card. Card reader and all, all that kind of infrastructure that exists in the right. card scheme. But the kind right. of marginal cost in in a consumer right. payment, if you're paying for something online or you're paying for something in store, is the keeping you secure, it's the transactional risk. But it's also additional risks like counterparty risk. So whenever you have a kind of payment between a consumer and a merchant, there is, as well as this kind of f- fraud risk that's just kind of technological, there's also just this counterparty risk where if the merchant produces a good that isn't sufficient the consumer needs a mechanism to kind of seek redress from the merchant and that has to be managed by some arbitrating uh party right um one of the problems with the card scheme is that it uses this kind of uh me- mechanism for shared secrets so when you when you pay for something you type in the pan number and the cvv code on the back the three three digit code and that's like a shared secret between you and the merchant and the, uh and the bank intermediary. and that that makes just even just the basics of like if a payment gets made should the payment have been made that makes solving that problem quite expensive and so you have to have all sorts of processes and procedures and indemnity policies and stuff but actually you can use cryptography to control that risk uh, right uh, in a way where if you sign a transaction using a, you know a private key that's stored securely on the customer's phone you can prove very clearly that the customer committed to it but the, the problem with the card network is it has this kind of, it doesn't have that built in at the, you know, at the base level. And there's lots of stuff to try and paper the cracks, but it doesn't really work. There's still this underlying problem underneath, which causes uh, unnecessary costs. And so anyway, so so I, so I sort of, you know, developed this thesis that the card network was pretty shitty and that this open banking thing was pretty interesting. And because we had instant bank transfers, there may be an opportunity to build a kind of completely new type of uh, payment network that was built on top of, that API access and right. the underlying instant bank transfer.
0: I mean, the whole the whole thing reminds it's me okay. a little bit of like I can't remember who's who's the Anderson Horowitz um, partner who writes about this, but he sort of so says like early stages of the internet is like taking stuff the way we did it in the old world and then transferring it into the internet. Like right. Um, Craigslist, right, was just like the the bit from the newspaper where there's the the list of you know stuff that people want and that sort of thing. I can't remember what it's called. Um, right. But then eventually on the new technological layer, Chris Dixon, that guy who writes about this, whole new ways of doing things emerge because uh, you don't need the old technology or the old way of doing things. So like cards and using card payments online to buy stuff is like a very 20th century or like transitory way of doing things. And then eventually it will move fully digital, right?
1: Yeah, and I think to some extent, one of the reasons why it's so archaic is because of the anti-competitive nature of retail banking there's a small number of banks that have like a large number percentage of their customer base they get uh, compensated by in in the form of something called interchange which is basically revenue revenue share on the transaction fee that gets charged to the merchant and so the banks don't really want to create more competition in consumer payments by opening up access um so they they tended to problem to been solved for many years, and uh, actually PayPal, when it was founded, was sort of trying to solve this problem, but they just couldn't convince the banks to give them access, so they ended up kind of almost pivoting from that original thesis into becoming a card wallet, so they just effectively gave up and said, okay, the card access is the basis of our product, and then built on top of it instead, and what I was trying to do was, instead of just build another thing on top of the card network, was to try and negotiate a way that we could could effectively kind of extract the card network altogether out, uh, out of the like build
0: like build private open banking almost
1: uh yeah like in in a way i guess so yeah would be like visa mastercard where we would try and build on open banking access where we would win because we build a healthier network that had better terms for merchants and consumers and merchants wanted to be on the network rather than the type of access that visa and mastercard enjoy which is an extremely small number of companies that just effectively can rest on their laurels because they've negotiated big contracts and nobody else is, is effectively allowed to compete with them um yeah, so yeah. it was a, it was more of a kind of open thesis i guess and, and that we were going to win based on merit rather than on unfair access
0: right, right right so you sort of went about tackling this and you started on that in about well it says Jan 2016 on your your linkedin um yep. and and you spent quite a long time on that right like
1: yeah, I spent about four or five years. Uh, mm. In total, we raised uh, one half million sterling. Mm. Uh, and ba- basically what what we started with was the kind of product risk. So ultimately, the, the question we wanted to ask ourselves was, could we create a consumer experience that was preferable to paying with card? Um, and we were very interested in one of the hardest um, areas of that to prove out. And that is uh, kind of everyday payments in quick service retailers. So coffee shops and takeaways and that kind of thing. So uh, we we started effectively with the product risk because we felt like there was no point in trying to tackle the distribution problem for a product that you know merchants and consumers didn't actually want to use to transact. Mm. Um, and th- it turns out that like c- 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 mobile payment, when you're competing with um, contactless payments, making mobile payments a user experience that consumers would choose over over that is is actually quite a hard product problem, and it took us I would say probably about 80 months just to get a kind of MVP of the product that felt like um, felt like it was it was actually meeting real user needs, and then we were starting to see the kind of uh, activation rates and retention rates that you you'd like to see out of a product to be certain that it was something that was worth scaling up. So that in and of itself took about a year and a half, uh, and then we started to sort of tackle all the other associated problems, like getting for example. The distribution problem how do you how do you distribute to merchants um and and the other big question for us which was the access to the bank apis to be able to instruct the bank transfers and that was a really big uh, kind of stumbling block for us because as i say the banks have very strongly misaligned incentives right um, and so getting that access was quite difficult and, and right. that ultimately i think ended up being a you know too much of a too much of a kind of problem for us and and, and we were kind of bound by the regulatory access that we needed and and the kind of the fact that that was being delayed
0: right and then you're also i guess just competing against so many players trying to go into this space who are very well capitalized like Mm -hmm. apple pay and google pay and that sort of thing obviously they're still working with the card providers but i guess that from a customer perspective right the user doesn't really care what's happening at the back end um but yeah there was there was them to go against as well, right.
1: Well, so I, it was an interesting one for us because ultimately we would have loved to have the curl network integrated into the operating system, which really just means attaching Apple Pay or, you know, uh, Android Pay or uh, Samsung Pay into the curl network. Um, mm. So we didn't, we never really saw ourselves as competing with those uh, those types of kind of um, you know, operating
0: system based like payment wallets. Right, you're more up against um, Visa and Mastercard and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that, that I think, you know, a key thing that's going to, I think this is going to play out over the next five to 10 years, I think that this is this is somebody is going to figure out how to build this network that replaces Visa or MasterCard. And I don't think it's going to be the apples, or the, or the um, Google's or the Andro, or the or the Samson's of this world, because there's no real incentive for them to do it. I mean, you, you, it's, it's quite a complicated area of financial regulation. You have all of this risk with kind of managing the relationship between merchants and consumers, which means you have to have all sorts of dispute processes. You have reputational risk. So I think what will happen is um, you will get these independent networks that will spring up, which effectively just replace Visa and MasterCard as new types of transactional network that are just built on these more secure, more efficient, uh, better user experience um, rails that can be built on top of all the open banking access that's now starting to be opened up.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- what what I think is the interesting one is obviously you're talking about building a network and it's a network of sort of merchants and consumers ultimately. Like what makes mm-hmm. Visa and MasterCard powerful, I guess, is like they have these relationships with the bra- the banks and then the banks have access to all the consumers. And then once all the consumers are on the the network, they just, they're just sort of there and then that attracts the merchants. It's like... It's quite chicken and egg but how do you break through that like do you um do you work with like emerging competitors to banks like crypto companies or or banks? um like what's your go-to market do you think
1: well i think that that's a it's a really good question um that's i spent a lot of time thinking about that i think if i had to kind of uh, if i had to put my um uh, my money where my mouth is i would say card acquirers so that is the companies that provide payment processing um, um, that provide payment processing to merchants at the moment on the card network are likely to become the primary distributor for these uh, new networks. And the reason for that is because in the old card world the issuing bank uh, so the bank that the customer had, was the institution that really needed to be compensated because they had to be convinced to give that scheme access to be able to connect to the customers. Now with open banking, uh, because of some work that I I was, I ended up, so the next stage of the story is that I ended up going into the regulator to basically help the Competition and Markets Authority uh, mandate that the banks provide this access for um, financial services companies to be able to build these types of payment propositions. So. The regulation, open banking regulation, that was effectively put together by the Competition Markets Authority in the UK, was supposed to deliver um, this payments functionality that we were effectively predicated on and were, were waiting for. Uh, and open banking started to make noises that it was struggling to make the case to the regulators that the risk would be controlled and that you know, this wouldn't create undue um, kind of systemic risk in the financial system, and all these kind of things. And so eventually I ended up saying to the regulator, look, like if, if you can't figure this out, I'm more than happy to come in, I'll spend six to 12 months, help you write these two um, consultation documents that the Competition and Markets Authority were waiting for uh, mm. and, ge- and get this access over the line. It's called Variable Recurring Payments Access. But effectively, I wrote two consultation papers for the Competition and Markets Authority. Those were published in April of this year. And then in July of this year, the Competition and Markets Authority accepted my recommendations. And they've now mandated that the nine biggest banks in the UK have to implement this uh, API-based payments access to be able to kind of hold a token. That's a long-held token that can be used to make uh, a payment on behalf of the customer without them having to be in the, the flow of
0: um, the authorization. Right. So they have to authorize pool payments from the customer's account, basically. They, they
1: have to provide access for um, financial companies to be able to, yeah, exactly, make pool-based payments. And that's, that's really important because... Open banking payment stuff that's been delivered so far is something called single immediate payments. And in that instance, every single time the payment needs to be initiated, the customer has to be in the loop, they have to be referred back to the bank's app, they have to authorize each individual payment. So that means all sorts of kind of subscription-based payments or you know seamless user experiences aren't really possible because they have to be referred back into the bank's app. And a lot of those journeys are very clunky. This is a form of access where you get consent from the customer, and that consent you can then use to make payments on behalf of the customer right. um, to other bank accounts. And, and, and that's instant settlement. It's a f- free form of access. So it's it's going to enable a whole host right. of new companies. And effectively that that was sort of the next stage for me beyond that was to then start a fund that was looking to invest in companies that are building around this infrastructure that effectively I, I helped create in the UK.
0: Right, right. So so in terms of like the company curl, I, I, did you sort of decide, okay, we've been pushing this for so long, I want to do something new? Or what, what sort of happened there?
1: Yeah, so so really what happened there was, I, as soon as we realized that the regulatory access was something that was stalling, and that I was going to, you know, if this was going to happen, effectively, I was going to have to step into open banking and, and push this over the line, because they were really struggling to make the case to the regulator. Uh, they were just taking the wrong approach. And they weren't talking to the competition markets authority and the financial conduct authority competent regulators could really understand and so i i i realized that i needed to commit to that if i wanted that outcome to happen and and as the leader of the company realistically that meant that you know effectively we, we at least had to face hiatus for that period i was gonna to have to commit at least three or four days a week uh, and effectively we, we would have to kind of um we'd have to at least shutter for for a good you know, eight to 12 right. months. Right, you were um,
0: basically gonna be lobbying full-time essentially. Yeah, I mean,
1: it, w- it was less lobbying to be honest. I mean, what I was doing was more kind of objective analysis of the payments landscape and of this new payments access that we were sort of analyzing effectively. So I took a risk-based approach where I was looking at the all the different kinds of risks that this new type of activity would throw up. And then all the types of kind of mitigations and controls that this new um, open banking access would allow that would control those additional types of risk. And I think by by doing a risk-based analysis, I think I provided both the Competition and Markets Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority the frame of reference that they were looking for in order to kind of, um, I guess, get themselves comfortable with the idea that what they were planning on or what they were being suggested to mandate on the 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 CMA nine, the nine biggest banks in the UK was proportionate and reasonable. And that's really what they worry about with this kind of regulation is they, they don't want to mandate something on the banks, which is unreasonable for obvious reasons, because it just creates downstream problems for them and create all sorts of systemic, systemic issues. And so really the, the two consultation papers that I wrote were, were a kind of risk based analysis that, that that effectively showed that actually there was, there was, there was very minimal systemic risk and there was a lot of upside to introducing the access
0: it's so fascinating like hearing all of this it's such a um like working in a re- obviously with Odin we're like you know in, in a regulated market as well I was listening to do you know Balaji and the guy mm-hmm. who's the Coinbase CTO and now he's at Anderson I think um he, he did a po- really long podcast with Sam Harris where they talked about like the failure of institutions in the U.S. and like how institutions like struggle in the digital age um mm-hmm. and his one point he made which i thought was really interesting i've been talking to everyone about this podcast but um was sort of like uh the 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 software builders approach to solving these sort of problems is to like build and test um -hmm. and then iterate and and when you do things that way the processes and um sort of like regulation in inverted commas that you create are actually like Uh, better more secure and higher quality than if you try to regulate them from the outset so he sort of uses the example of like uber and says you know the trust with uber um, and your ability to trust in the quality of the drivers and that sort of thing is higher than if you went to like a taxi firm and they had a stamp that said we're regulated by the taxi authority and all our drivers have been reviewed and you know you're not going to get raped by any of them or whatever right Um, So it's interesting, you know, so he's sort of like this big believer in like the decentralized future and everything being run on on crypto. And um, I mean, it's interesting. You were talking about this being like a token based system. Right. So I assume it's the bank that becomes the issuer of the token in this scenario. Um, Is is that right? And then. um, Um,
1: So so it's so you mean from an open banking payments? Perspective, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, in in this instance, a token really just represents an access token. So, it's not it's not like a token in the crypto sense. That's this oh, whole debate about whether it's a security or an asset or whatever it is. But it, this no, is no, no. I meant sorry, I
0: meant token in the sense of the key, like the 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 unique yeah. the unique cash or whatever that you that you have for your mm-hmm. for your wallet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so open banking is really about or, or VRP. This variable recurring payments thing is really just about this long held consent. And this access token that you can then use Mm. in order to kind of get access to the bank and act on behalf of the customer to make a payment, Mm. but without them having to authorize each individual movement, which means you can Mm. create all sorts of new kind of automated user experiences um, that previously were you you could try to build them using debit card access so you can tokenize a, a debit card access and then use that to move funds. The yeah. issue is the cost associated with it,
0: right? Because you got to so pay the what, the visa fees or the mask yeah, fees. Yeah, yeah, and
1: and so that makes all sorts of kind of more dynamic, automated experiences economically infeasible because they can't be scaled because there's that underlying cost of card card payment mm-hmm. and what we've effectively what what i've sort of pushed over the line this year by by doing this work for the competition and markets authority working with open banking is this vrp and sweeping access which will provide a free form of access with instant settlement um Mm. over the faster payment network in the uk which is the bank transfer network Mm. which will then effectively provide a completely a completely different form of access which enables a whole host of new um new types of propositions that previously were totally impossible Mm. Um, and that that really was the the kind of the, initially the idea was that we're going to finish that work and then effectively we're going to kind of reboot, curl, turn, turn everything back on again, and start talking to the strategic investors we were talking to, start start talking to VCs again, and be like that there was this big risk that was the access that we needed. We've de-risked that. We're going to carry on. Mm. Um, uh, but simultaneously, as I was sort of in the motions of doing this, I ended up talking with a chap called Alex Dunstan, yep, um, and another guy called Doug Scott. Um, they run um, an organisation called Potential, which uh, does all sorts of things in, in various different kind of domains of, you know, building early stage investing in companies and all sorts of stuff. And um, I basically they asked me if money was no object, what would you do? And I described this fund uh, that I called New Finance Ventures, and that was a fund that was designed to to invest in the companies that are aiming to restructure the financial system. So my thesis is that the The incumbent financial system is extremely inefficient, and it doesn't serve society very well at all. Uh, And there's a big opportunity cost attached to that. There are some underlying principles, I think, that have been proven out in this kind of wild west of crypto. They've just been able to play with new models of structuring a financial system. So that was sort of my question. New ways of using cryptography.
0: that was sort of my question when I was talking about, you know, Balagis and, and that, that podcast. It's sort of mm-hmm. like almost if you just go, go and do this stuff and don't ask for permission, um, do you end up, does that end up, and, and then once you've done it for a while, you can show to regulators, actually, this probably works better than what you have now. Like in terms of who's likely to solve this problem, is it more likely to be a company working purely in the crypto world and then getting regulated? Or is it a company who tows the line, works with regulators, and then builds maybe on a mixture of you know old rails and new rails or, or whatever?
1: Exactly. So, so I, I would see maybe I'm not sure exactly the the quotes that you're talking of, but I would see it sort of in 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 two so so two different parts of that. So the first part being, I agree that crypto as a venue creates a space where. Um, people can get together and transact in a way which they, they don't need permission from a traditional financial regulator. And that puts competitive pressure on those gatekeeping institutions. Whereas previously, we right. there was no other venue that anybody could use. They just right. gatekept the financial activity and that was it. Like you either got permission from them to engage in the activity or you didn't. And crypto has provided a kind of new venue for people to do that kind of experiment without permission. Now that, that definitely is valuable. Now the second part, Which is where i probably diverge is long term is completely unregulated finance one desirable or two feasible now like let's park the desirable bit like let's say for argument's sake it is desirable that's fine but two is it feasible i personally i think it isn't unless we make a radical change over how we govern society so i think the fact is we have financial legislation financial activity is intended to be a regulated activity, there doesn't seem to be any appetite to change that. And therefore, I would argue that long term, the inevitable outcome is that that kind of Wild West crypto activity, at least the kind of above board stuff that isn't intending to be black market will eventually get captured as legislation and guidance is adapted. And that will get dragged into the traditional regulated financial system. Mm -hmm. And so what our fund new finance ventures is doing is finding the companies that agree with that thesis and are taking the principles and tech that underpin crypto. So for example, it might be, you know, applied cryptography or computable contracts or open APIs and taking those principles and then applying them in the regulated financial space. So figuring out what sort of license they need, or if they need to develop a whole new licensing structure for the type of activity they want to engage in, and then figuring out what, domains of finance they can make more efficient uh, or they could create completely new types of product in uh, and those are exactly the type of companies that we want to we mm. want to invest in is, is companies that are trying to completely restructure the traditional regulated financial system rather than overthrow it with some completely unregulated right. uh, unregulated like pure play crypto um
0: yeah it's so interesting to think about how this plays out like some people like the crypto maximalists are sort of believers that like eventually you know they'll just figure out self-regulating mechanisms that work better than the ones that the regulators have and the regulators will be like okay let's just adopt that but i think you're right like where stuff plays at the interface is is probably Mm -hmm. most likely to be successful i mean your, your point on like is if there's a radical change in the way we govern society and that sort of thing uh is also a very interesting one because it's like you know current institutions are just so poorly set up to deal with the digital age because they're from an era where everything was top down one-to-many distribution Mm. and the internet age is basically about many-to-many flat distribution of information and power and, you know, it's just it's just completely different. But where sort of old power and new power meet, like that interface does seem to be a, a really interesting space.
1: But I think that's exactly why crypto has a lot of value in, as I say, putting competitive pressure in effect on yeah. these kind of gatekeeping institutions. Like the whole reason for a regulator existing is so that they can like, actively manage risk. And a crypto system represents a kind of inherent risk to a regulator in the sense that it's pretty much its entire reason for being. Is that it's not coercible? Yeah, A regulator yeah. exists in order to coerce the behavior and to censor activity and to you know manage licenses and decide who who can do what when and how. I think so. I think that that's the reason why I think it's really important to distinguish between the the genuine benefit of crypto and creating this venue where if society decides that the gatekeeping regulators are being too heavy handed and that the financial system is as it is today, is is extremely inefficient. And there are lots of areas where the regulation is either wrong or it's too heavy-handed or whatever. By creating a venue where effectively society has the option to go to and to move its transaction volume to is a positive thing. But what I expect to happen is that this will just encourage the regulators to start to be more progressive, to open Mm. up areas, rather than allow it to kind of get out of hand and out, out of their reach.
0: It's already happening, isn't it? Like some states in the US have been very forward thinking on this stuff. And then I also think, you know, your point on competition is really interesting. Like um, it's almost competition in the sense of policy, like policy, like Mm -hmm. regulator competition, right? So like there are big opportunities for these sort of city states and small countries like Estonia and Singapore and, you know, the Caymans and places like that to be like really progressive, but still provide like some security and yep. safety blanket for you know the cons- for well for all the participants in the transactions because otherwise but that's
1: exactly that's exactly what Jersey's done right. um, and and I think to, you know now the the UK interestingly in in leaving Europe is now in a position where it can harmonise with Europe which is which is obviously the plan for the time being it's called gold plating which is wait if you're an EU member state. You can't be seen to be adding additional pieces of legislation which make you more attractive than other member states. And you can be challenged legally as a a nation if if you do that as part of the EU. So the UK is now in quite an interesting position where it has this financial, the financial regulator, the FCA in the UK is, is, is kind of a leading regulator in the world. They're supporting open banking. They've got the FCA sandbox. There's all sorts of stuff that the UK is doing to kind of lead regulation. And it's simultaneously being freed up so that it can it can keep its harmonisation with your enjoy um, pretty healthy access to European markets, whilst also being freed up so that it can start to kind of add additional legislation on top if it thinks it can kind of sweeten the the deal for operators financial operators in, in the uk so yeah, it's, it's a pretty yeah. interesting time for the uk i think
0: i agree i think there's a silver lining with brexit and like I, I was very much on the fence personally with that with it i mean i can see where everyone was coming from and it's sort of you know um it's tricky because you know whether you vote leave or remain was so mixed up in like other political ideologies because we oh we,
1: we yeah, put yeah, them so, all in so, one should...
0: bucket together like If you vote leave, you're automatically like a racist and hate immigrants. Do you know what I mean? It's Mm. like, well, I should probably, I should
1: probably clarify that. I'm not making a value judgment about whether the the net, the the net overall uh, decision was socially beneficial for the UK. Just purely in this, in this one specific instance, I think this is a case where the UK potentially could benefit provided that the the leadership. It's it's done, right?
0: right? So now we need to focus on outcomes and like benefits. Like, Mm. yeah, I think net, it probably wasn't a good thing, but you know, now we are where we are. I think right. the, the point that's interesting here is like the internet generally sort of favors devolution of power and decentralization of everything. That's what it, that's the effect it has on everything it touches. So mm-hmm. I think it's sort of naturally leading to like um, uh, favoring that sort of behavior and way of operating. Like you can see it in the, the big, large centralized powers like the U.S., um, or Russia, they either try or China. They either, they either try and re- retain like a really tight grip on the flow of information, or mm-hmm. they're they're being destroyed by sort of political infighting because there's so many different sides and ideas and all that sort of thing. Now, I mean, the US is the main example, right? And it's like long term. Does that just mean that like small, more agile states are, are better equipped to to solve problems? Anyway. Yeah, and, and
1: I think that's one of the arguments that people who are sort of pro let's say, pure play crypto, where they're building this unregulated system, that's maybe the sort of, if I had to steel man their argument, it's that 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 competitive dynamic between nation states, nation states internationally, is going to create a situation where the FCA in the UK or the sec in the u.s doesn't really have any option it can't aggressively come down on these crypto operators because effectively it's it's pushing growth and innovation money will just go
0: somewhere else right
1: yeah but uh, well okay but i think the i think that's the theory in practice i so i well being being honest it's it's hard to know exactly what will happen but i suspect that um you know, as an institution, the SEC or the FCA in the UK, I mean, that, that that machine is wired to effectively pursue and protect their ability to control risk in financial markets and protect consumers.
0: Yeah, And yeah. Yeah.
1: Complete, a completely unregulated financial system, which is what many sort of pro pure play crypto advocates are, are pushing for, is something that is fundamentally antithetical to um, to those types of institutions so I would I would I be surprised think, yeah. if they were so worried about innovation that they would be worried they would be willing to kind of undermine their entire reason for existing that uh, yeah, seems
0: to I, 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 yeah I agree. I think the other thing that gets missed here is just like politically and ideologically these people are like pure libertarians and mm-hmm. pure libertarianism is not like a popular ideology exactly of the masses so well the, the,
1: the narrative about the global financial crisis, For ordinary people, is not that it was caused by too much regulation; it's that it was Mm. caused by a lack of regulation. Mm. And that's something that I think, to your point, I don't think that a lot of these more ideologically motivated libertarian elements of the crypto world really are honest with themselves about. Which is that that narrative is the narrative that they believe in so strongly is is not popular at all.
0: No, it's not. It's like, and with all those folks, it's like you know, it's it's sort of like the stereotype. Silicon Valley tech bro, you know, read Atlas Shrugged and then didn't read another book afterwards. Um, but, you know, and I think there is some truth in some of those ideologies, but I don't think it's sensible to try and run society completely that way, right? Like it's just, it's just it just doesn't work like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I've been going to the Bitcoin meetups, like the London Bitcoin meetup since 2011. So I've spent a decade, you know, discussing this with um, with people, you know, some of the real original Bitcoin you know, OGs who were, who were around at that time. Mm. And um, I think the thing, the thing that's interesting to me is I still think there, there are some underlying principles in tech in crypto. I mentioned three of them before. You know, applied cryptography is a very, very, cryptography is a very, very good way of controlling risk. Mm. And controlling risk, as I mentioned, is like effectively the, the key thing that you're doing when you're, when you're doing any kind of financial activity. And the use of applied cryptography in controlling risk is super important to creating efficient financial systems and, 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 and customer propositions. And I think what the crypto world West has proven out, regardless of what happens with regulation, is that that underlying principle of using applied cryptography to control risk is, is clearly effective. And there's a lot of opportunity to use it in restructuring the financial system to make it more efficient. So I guess what where I come at it from is i don't really need to make a value judgment about how decentralized or how centralized or how regulated or unregulated it will be i'm more interested in the teams that are focusing on the value proposition to the end user Mm. and how these kind of underlying principles can be used to move the needle for users because i think long term those are the types of teams and companies and propositions that that are, are worth being on the cap table of
0: Mm-hmm. And how do, you, how, do you, how do you think about this from a thesis perspective? Do you sort of have a, a few specific areas of new finance that you're looking at and that you have concrete theses on and you're like actively searching for companies or is yep. it more?
1: Yeah, well- exactly. So yeah, we tend to take a more of a bottom-up approach. So there's, there's really sort of five core themes which we focus on. The first is, as I mentioned before, is blockchain applied cryptography. Mm. The second is digital currencies and central bank digital currencies. So this is, you know, like the, the UK has announced Bitcoin, but also super interested in, um, in what Facebook are doing with supporting the DM network uh, and, and how that's going to play out. So I think mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of opportunity for, for, for growth and, and building new types of uh, payment processes and new types of consumer propositions on top of those kind of more regulated digital currencies. Um, Open finance and and, and APIs, again, is is another area. That's the third one. Computable contracts and programmable money, super interesting area. It opens up all sorts of new financial products, new methods of governance. Very, very interesting. Mm. And then market networks, which, again, Mm. is another area that I think is super interesting, like bringing the market network dynamic to areas of um the 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 financial system that currently you know aren't aren't exposed to that kind of those kind of digital digital networks Mm. super super interesting
0: Mm. i think market networks is one of those things where it's like i mean obviously we have a bias because we're sort of trying to build something (laughs) in this space but it it feels like there's a lot of sectors where you know it's it's starting to 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 crop up and big things are happening Um, uh, you know, if you look at Depop and, you know, platforms in the commerce space, like, you know, that's sort of what they're building. Um, I think it's interesting to think about how it plays out in more like niche B2B spaces and, and stuff like that. Are there, are there any examples of, you know, specific companies in, in in financial services that are doing stuff in that area that you you've been looking at?
1: Well, I know one, right? I'm, I'm talking to the <laughs> founder, so. I,
0: I. And seriously, I mean,
1: I, like, yeah, it's a bit funny to do that, but I mean, I think it's a perfect example, though. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very, um, I guess, yeah, from my perspective as someone who's sort of entering into the, you know, VC space, it's super interesting to see, to see somebody applying market networks, um, like market network dynamics into that space, and the, to look at and think about what the, what the potential um, you know, impact that that could have. The, and the thing is, it's not even just about you know Odin. It's about what types of businesses, what types of firms, what types of organizations, what types of individual actors right. could that then secondarily support. Right, right,
0: right, right. And I think like that's really you, what you... our
1: fund focuses on. It's like, yeah. who's trying to make a move which is about restructuring, genuinely restructuring the way that parts yeah, of the financial system yeah. work. So we're not trying to invest in, like, we're not really interested in, like, not that there's anything wrong with this, but we're not really interested in people who are making software as a service tools for financial businesses. That's, that there are lots of successful companies that have been built, and there's lots of you know successful VCs that have invested on that thesis. We're not really interested in that. We're much more interested in in, in companies you know like Odin that are, that are trying to really like swing for the fences and and think about how they can use some of these uh, you know methods to yeah. genuinely restructure the way that it works
0: yeah it's sort of like how do you i mean looking at the other areas as well right it's sort of like how do you turn how do you create infrastructure and then how do you like commoditize stuff that isn't currently a commodity and and open up access and then you know if you do that right then it's like as you say you, build, you create opportunities to build very big businesses on top of that commodity as well.
1: I, um, the, uh, the thing I would say about market networks, I mean, uh, again, I, I sort of, I mean, what we were doing with curl was effectively a market network. That mm. was our thesis long-term was that mm. it wasn't going to be in transaction fees. We were actually going to build a market network and that's where our business was going to lie. So we mm. were trying to push transaction fee to zero and then build a business and a market network. The, mm. the thing about market networks, that I think really lends itself so well to startups is that there is a really difficult kind of Rubik's cube of you've got to get the product, right. You've got to get the tech, right. You've got to get the distribution, right. You've got to get this. There's so many different bits and pieces and moving parts that it really lends itself well to early stage founders and early stage companies, because you do have to have a lot of grit and nouse when you think about how you get to market, because you've got this two sided network and you've got to figure out, okay, how do I, Like, how do I, how do I solve this chicken and egg problem? Yeah. Like, how do I do like, for example, like, come for the tool, stay for the network?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Founders, early stage founders are the type of people who are capable of thinking that way. Yeah. I think large institutions, uh, like even large incumbents in the payment space, even if they can see the opportunity, just aren't wired. It's not in their DNA to try to figure out how to solve those problems. It's much more suited to smaller, smaller, um. Smaller operations and, and founders that have experience solving those problems already.
0: Yeah, I think NFX's playbooks on this stuff are, are really yep. good. Um, totally agree. The way James Courier always talks about it is like, um, start with a SaaS workflow tool that solves a problem for one player in the network and mm-hmm. focus on them. And then you load up like either supply or demand. Without worrying about the other side of the marketplace, essentially. Yeah, it's
1: like make a single-player game and think of all of it as a single-player game. Right, like, right. If and you then can create a single-player game, then that's that's your route to
0: market. And then introduce new players, and eventually over time, yep. it becomes multiplayer, and that's when you really grow and create a moat, right
1: yeah so that's what we so we, so i guess going full circle back to back to your early journey with curl and the product things like part of what we were trying to do was figure out like what's a what's an example of a consumer payment game that is a single player game and mm. that's why we focused on quick service retailers because we mm. said there are coffee shops that already have let's say 400 regular customers that is a closed loop where those customers come back every day so if the, the customer cards. downloads the app and uses it, they're getting value from the app every day, which means we have stickiness. We're building up a relationship with the consumer, but it also means we have, as long as we can incentivize the merchant by reducing their cost of payment processing and imbr- improving the customer experience in the store, then effectively the merchant becomes a distribution channel for us because they have this captured audience of, of regular customers that are already you know we haven't actually got a two-sided market um, problem so that was exactly the type of single player we were focused on how do we help you know regular um how do we help local businesses with regular customers you know improve the way that they um serve customers and reduce cost and 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 Mm -hmm. that ended up sort of effectively being the underlying thesis that started you know the 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 kind of we we started to kind of grow and and improve the 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 product side of things um Mm -hmm. based on that
0: yeah, I think that's an interesting angle. The other thing there is like you sort of landing and trying to expand in an area where like no one else is really looking like the incumbents aren't bothered about it because it's like such a tiny opportunity, but they haven't yep. seen that it's it's an ent- it's a wedge to drive into that market, you know, totally.
1: Um, that's so right. That That's 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 one of the key reasons, I think, why I expect much of this building of new networks and building of new infrastructure to not come from incumbents, despite the fact that they have tons of capital. The, the reason is because it's not in their DNA to think about the types of problems at the scale they exist um, that you need to address first as a kind of on-ramp to yes. building momentum to where you need to get to.
0: Because it wouldn't move the needle for, you know, their top or bottom line, which is what the CEO is worried about in those large organizations, right. right?
1: They're not interested in building like in the payment space. Like, there's there's big payment companies that tomorrow could like build an app that was focused on coffee shops, but they're just never going to do it because it's just like they they'll be like, why would we? Why would we you do get this? laughed at? Yeah, yeah,
0: um, yeah. It's so interesting. Um, and and then let's talk about a bit about the fund. So y- you're in the fundraising process at the moment.
1: Yep, we're aiming to close by the end of this year, so um, we want to be cutting checks by January 2022. Um, nice. The fund essentially as i mentioned the fund is investing in this area that we it's called new finance ventures and we invest in this sort of new category or this category that we've identified called new finance and new finance is essentially the synthesis or the collision of these two worlds so on the one hand you've got this kind of regulated financial system which is inefficient and slow and there's regulatory capture and there are all the problems that everybody knows there are with the traditional financial system And on the other side, you've got this sort of crazy, wacky, unfettered uh, Wild West of crypto. And so new finance is effectively where these two worlds start to collide. And it's where the principles and tech underpinning crypto are being used to radically restructure the way that the um, existing regulated financial system works. And we Mm -hmm. fund the teams who are effectively ushering in that new era of new finance. So that's the, in broad terms, that's the sort of underlying thesis. Uh, The way that we want to structure the fund is we have sort of two layers to the fund. So our investor base is made up of kind of angel investor, founder, operator types who've built uh, fintech companies, worked at fintech companies, and are now doing angel investing. Mm -hmm. So they're um, our kind of key venture partners. And these are, you know, these are are active angel investors who see, see their own deal flow. Um, but we have a kind of carry compensation um, scheme with them where they're incentivized to pull their, you know, deal flow into, um, into the fund. And on top of that kind of venture partner layer, we have then a kind of range of institutions who are much more passive um, and um, yeah, effectively kind of more like traditional, more institutional investors in the fund.
0: Mm, right, 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 right. So I guess you get a bit of old finance and a bit of new finance in a way there, right?
1: Well, yeah, and I guess what we're trying to do is from from day one to try and think about, you know, VC and structuring of a fund, again, like almost kind of dog food on our own thesis, mm. is to look at the the VC model and say, okay, what that's fundamentally, you know, based around some kind of new principles, whether it's kind of network thinking. So as I mentioned, we've got this venture partner network. Mm. And, 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 and to try to try and kind of almost um, put our money where our mouth is in terms of thinking about how we build the, 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 the fund, both fund yeah. one, fund two, fund three, and just thinking yeah. about how that, how that will work going forward.
0: And I think how potential plays into that is really interesting as well, right? Mm. Like what Alex and Doug are doing as LPs. So yeah. might be worth framing that, but like, you know, Pete Denny's building a climate VC also backed by Alex and Doug. Alex and, Doug. and then I, I think they've got some other folks in the pipeline, right? um and, and you're also i guess alex and, into
1: go on so alex and doug have mentioned recently um that they're, they're planning so there's um i'll have to look it up but the, the un has sort of like 17 um development goals yes and alex and doug are aiming to create a fund for, for each of development
0: those development goal. goals That's so cool
1: Um, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting thesis, like the the whole thesis of potential, like I won't do it justice, but ultimately the the thesis of potential is to try to find exceptional people, but exceptional people that are on the edges and Mm. are slipping through the cracks. Mm. So potential, uh, an organization is, is wired to try to figure out who are the, who are the, who are the people who are being wasted in society and then how can we lift them up and allow them to, you know, have the impact that they should really be having. And um, I think potential in terms of its sort of thesis, I, I I really resonate with it. I think there's a lot of people who have so much potential, and the reason that they that they're not given the opportunity to realise that is purely because they don't fit a mould. And yeah. I really like that Alex and doug are trying to configure. You know, they're running this experiment where they're trying to figure out people they can experiment with to do loads of exp. So it's sort of experiments all the way down. Yeah, it's yeah. A, super interesting thing to to watch them operate i, I think so much value is, is is going to be produced out of what they're doing
0: yeah i think it's so unique to the way the two of them think and hmm. you know the way sort of alex describes it and the sort of way he thinks about things you know sort of like uh i don't know how, you know it's 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 very human right so it's so it's like um you know on the point of like people with untapped potential you know sitting frustrated inside a business or whatever it's like why don't they go out and do things themselves mm-hmm. you know it, it's like that's a lot to do with like their past their personal issues you know whatever and I think it's framed really well on their website which I took a look at today which is is really cool but yeah I think they're doing something really awesome and I, I think it's got so much potential <laughs> itself yeah yeah I think- yeah
1: I mean it, it's also it, it as you say like it, it's a from a kind of 50,000 foot view, it's an incredible vision. But the thing I really like about both of them is that they're also very practical. So they think yes. tactically about how to actually realize it. And I think that's that's something, it, it is that is the kind of founder, the kind of gritty founder mindset. And they both have that. And it's so interesting to watch them apply it to such a big idea. I think such a yeah. kind of crazy... Um, yeah, yeah, vision.
0: Yeah, I think how it plays out in venture capital is going to be super interesting because you know they're basically saying, okay, we're going to do these seventeen funds, and then for them that means you're basically building like a fund of funds, indexing, you mm-hmm. know, sort of venture. I guess initially UK and Europe, and then you know, you know more further afield. I just think that thesis is really good as well. Like uh, focus on emerging managers, and then you know. VC very much turning into this world of like you're either a monster like Benchmark or you know Tiger or Kotu or these guys coming in um, or Anderson or you need to be like boutique and super focused in terms of what you're doing and their thesis is sort of like oh well it's the boutique and focus ones but we're just going to back a load of different boutiques in different areas and sort of build build the portfolio that way and also you know Tying it back to the UN impact goals, making it about building shit the world actually needs, yep. Rather than like exactly. you know like more boring sas, rather than like, like more Ponzi delivery. schemes or, <laughs> or, or
1: or you know like yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, this is so much. Yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. No, I mean, I,
1: I was going to say. I mean, I think again, like their their vision, I think is 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 also. Um, a kind of network-based vision in that mm-hmm. by building potential VC as a network, there are all these sorts of um, serendipities that will occur between the various fund managers and portfolio yes. companies. And by building yes. this kind of family of funds and portfolio companies, it will be way bigger than the sum of its parts. It's so it's not that. just yeah. about building like a big, flat, massive portfolio portfolio, that looks like it more like an index it's actually about the fact that by they can use network effects to to kind of uh, again further raise up the portfolio companies and the fund managers and ultimately like it will end up being bigger than the sum of its parts
0: yeah, yeah 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 it's that sort of like the medici effect right this idea that like um innovation happens at the interface of uh industries that didn't previously interact right so like yeah. what happens when you've got people in climate talking to people in fintech or people in biotech talking to people in AI or whatever, obviously there's a lot of stuff happening in that, in that space now. Um, And then, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the overlap and how those, those parts interact is, is uh, squares the value, right? Exactly. And I'm, I'm,
1: I'm really excited to see how this kind of new finance fund can support all of these, um, kind of UN Development Goal uh, funds because I think the financial infrastructure is so important in so many domains of life. It's a necessary evil in a way. Like financial infrastructure is, it's you can't get away from it. Even if you're doing charity, you have to have quality financial infrastructure. And and, and even to you know to some extent, thinking about the, the t- some of the types of challenges that you know f- people trying to do carbon accounting face, mm. like if the, if the, the, the more quality infrastructure there is um, particularly financial infrastructure I think it opens up all sorts of new avenues and so I think there's going to be a lot of crossover between the types of companies that will invest in with the new finance fund and then the types of companies that might be invested in a by the climate fund or the education fund or etc etc so it's it's super I'm so I'm so, uh, I'm so fortunate to get to um, you know first of all work on, on on a fund with a thesis like new finance ventures have but also mm. to be doing this under the umbrella of potential because there's there's all these other kind of additional um, opportunities and benefits of, of what i'm going to spend my my day doing
0: yeah, yeah it's so cool it's it's awesome and and how how big is this first fund going to be is that sort of set in stone yet
1: uh, so fund one we're targeting 10 10 million right, um, right okay but it it, it well put it this way it, like 10 million is the is the kind of water level we we may depending depending on um, circumstances uh, by the end of the year we we may be raising a, a fair bit more than that but mm. remains to be seen
0: depends if whatever big lp potential lp you're talking to at the moment decides well to I, I
1: mean i think the, the 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 thesis of the fund and the fact that we're building this venture partner network um, I think is very attractive to institutional investors because mm. the quality of deal flow that we'll be able to generate because we're incentivizing. And I think, you know, designing incentives in the right way, you know, my experience over the last 10 years is very, very important. It's like, it's, it's very important that people that you partner with have downside, um, you know, like have shared downside mm. and, and Talib wrote an entire book about this. Um, Skin, you know, in Skin in the game. Um, But it is so, so important. And I think, you know, if we can pull off building this venture partner network where we have very tightly aligned um, people in the finance, financial innovation space who generate their own deal flow, who pull in very high quality, you know, qualified deal flow into the fund and offer a, an investee of the fund, like a founder who's looking to raise money from us, who offer them access to that network as a kind of, you know, like downstream consequence of um, of having us on the cap table. I think we have a really, really strong proposition from that point of view, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, especially because of the conditions in in raising VC money at the moment, I think that's quite a it's quite an attractive, um, quite an attractive proposition to to all sorts of um, institutions, and so really we're not. We're not wedded to that 10 million number. And, and if, the, if the conditions are right and we can find the right people, um, it, it may end up being a little bit larger.
0: And how, how are you thinking about stage and like how many co- checks you cut out of that fund? And So we're going to
1: do, we, we'll do pre, um, pre-seed and seed. Uh, we're aiming to do what I call wide and shallow. Right. So we want to do f- at least 50 investments over 12 months. Uh, but we right. want to do 20% of the round and target about 5% of uh, the equity of the company. Right. Uh, and the reason for doing that is because we want to, you know, effectively, the, the, the reason that that works is because we moderate the size of the deals we do. Well, first of all, we're not going to be leading the round if we're only doing 20%. Right, It's very low, which means we can do lots of them. It's, it's, it's operationally feasible to do that many deals. And the second is that if we moderate the deal size, we'll make sure we have the broadest possible allocation across... Uh, across the startups that we we find that we think are investable and the the reality of early stage returns is that it's it's possible to kind of remove the the dead weight and companies that you don't think are going to make it but then between the good and the great it's very difficult to determine there are so many factors involved man, you really man, have to identify yeah. who are the teams that you think are going to be able to put up a good fight yeah 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 effectively spread yourself across as many as possible and so i think at least for fund one we're not going to be you know leading any rounds we're going to be just trying to help make early stage conviction based investments so we'll, we'll 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 commit a check even if they don't have a lead investor and then we'll try and help them build around off the back of that mm-hmm.
0: i think that's an that's a really interesting approach like um it, i mean firstly going in alongside uh, another lead is good as an emerging manager for like building some credibility and and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and obviously if you saw stuff that you have conviction in you can help share it with your network as well. And then Mm -hmm. I I suspect it also frees up more time for you to focus on your relationship with your LPs uh, and, and that sort of thing, because like, you know, once you get to fund two and three, I think building that good relationship from the start is, is also important if you were spending time hunting for deals all the time um yep. you'd, you'd have less t- less time to do that exactly. exactly um well it's super exciting um <laughs> so if people want to get in touch with you they can they can reach out on on twitter and linkedin yeah mike mike kelly
1: 85 right on twitter and if you want to email me it's just mike at new newfinance.vc.
0: newfinance.vc. is your website up yet by the way
1: yeah yeah it is up it's just a holding page at the moment but there's a you, there's a Uh, you can get on the kind of news list if you want to name your email so you can keep keep track of progress and um, yeah as I say just send me an email or send me a DM, dm on twitter if you want to chat about the fund or chat about new finance in general as a category like more than happy to chat with pretty much anyone so just reach
0: out Website's sick. I'm just looking at it now. <laughs> who does the branding? Like, is this the same people who do potentials? Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So, there, there is like this is really cool. Like, potential is structured in this awesome way. And there's this sort of a team inside of potential who do like all sorts of stuff like marketing and branding. And right. yeah, there's a uh, there's a guy called Will inside of potential. Will Viles is an awesome guy.
0: Is he doing all cool, the uh, uh, designs? Design right, right, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, his, yeah, it's his, exactly. his touch everywhere. And then I guess Alex is. <laughs> Alex is ex Sachi and Sachi, isn't he? So he's definitely got an eye for this stuff. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's so so cool. Love it. Um, Okay. Well, look, Mike, thanks so much for your time. Um, And uh, yeah, chat to you again soon.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thanks for coming. Bye, man.
0: See you. Bye, bye, bye.